I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19, which you can find if you're inside on Pew Bible, page number 1073. The Gospel according to John, chapter 19, starting today in verse 17, which you can find on Pew Bible, page 1073. We've reached that time of the year when we turn our attention even more focused more concentratedly on the sacrificial death and then the victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week. And then at the other end of that Holy Week is Resurrection Sunday. Misty's put a little page about it in your bulletin to remind you that it's coming and to invite your friends. And so I thought since we've reached this point on the calendar, that we would turn to the end of one of the Gospels. And it's been a while since we were in John together. And slow down over a couple weeks and remind ourselves of the story of what happened there. I had a hard time figuring out where to start this week. I knew that I wanted to get to John chapter 19, verse 30. But where should we begin? I mean, we could start in John chapter 1, which begins before the beginning of time. But we don't have time this morning to tell the whole story of Jesus. So I decided to start right at that moment when Jesus picks up his cross and heads towards Golgotha. And that's John chapter 19, verse 17. Let me read to you verses 17 and 18 to, to get us started, and then we'll think more deeply about what happened on that crucial day, John chapter 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, my, my greatest treasure, I count but loss and poor contempt. I hate all of my pride. The authors of the four Gospels don't, they do not spend hardly any time on the sheer horror of the crucifixion. They don't dwell on it. They don't describe it. They don't give the details. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that everybody in the Roman world knew what crucifixion was. You didn't have to describe how awful it was. You may have seen it for yourself. 
everybody knew. I think another reason is so that we don't get fixated on the gore. We can sometimes take a perverse pleasure in picturing pain and miss the point. The gospel writers never missed the point. But everybody knew. All John has to say is what he says in verse 18. Here they crucified him. Title of this message today. That's all he had to say. And everybody knew how unthinkably awful was what happened to Jesus. Just that word crucified was enough. D.A. Carson describes it this way. Here in this public place where all could see him, the soldiers crucified Jesus. In the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull up with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. That's what was going on in verse 18. That's what was happening to Jesus. And if we saw it live and in person, we would probably puke. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to not think about it. I'm tempted to turn my mind away to nicer things. Talk about the weather. But I believe we should not look away. We should survey the wondrously awful cross and see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And there was so much going on when Jesus was crucified. So much more than just a painful gasping and the agony of the nails. The Apostle John, in reflecting back on those crucial hours, saw many things coming together around and through Jesus as he was crucified there. And I want to point out four of them that I've noted in verses 17 through 30. Here's number one. As they crucified him, number one, Jesus was being proclaimed as king. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Jesus was being proclaimed as king as they crucified him. Let's start again up in verse 17. Jesus has lived his perfect life. 
done his amazing miracles, taught his kingdom teaching, and for all of that goodness, he has been feared, hated, arrested, flogged, judged, dragged from court to court, from Jewish court to Roman court, beaten, spat upon, mocked, yelled at, and scourged. Many victims didn't make it to the cross. They died of blood loss before getting there. And now he's being made to carry his own cross. Look at verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now the part of Jesus' cross that he probably had to carry was the cross beam. See here on this sculpture that Josh Curlin has made for us, it's this part here, the, the horizontal part. That was removable on most Roman crosses. The other part, the, the vertical part, was often permanently placed in the ground, kind of a stake in the ground. They would use it. This is the place of execution. They would leave it there. And the victim was made to carry his own crossbeam to the place of execution, which was called Skull Hill. Probably it kind of had that shape of a, a skull to it, though it could have been because of what terrible things happened there. The Greek is cranion. We get our cranium from that. Golgotha in the Aramaic. Later, cranion was translated something like calvarion, which we gets into English as calvary. That's our word calvary. It means that same place, the place of the skull. This is the place outside of Jerusalem where Jesus died. Here they crucified him. And just as Isaiah had predicted 700 years before he was even born, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, one on either side. Jesus was crucified between two bad guys, probably rebel insurrectionists, terrorist guerrilla fighters against Rome. Each of them, all three of them, nailed to their crosses and struggling to breathe and slowly dying. It was a common practice to put up a placard, a sign, either hanging around the neck of the accused, the charged, the convicted, or nailed above the head of the criminal being crucified with the charge inscribed on it, that which you were convicted of and being executed for. This would be a deterrent for other criminals, right? You walk by and you see thief above the name of a guy who's hanging there, and you say, See what happens if you do this? What was Jesus' crime? Look at verse 19. Pilate, the Roman governor, had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the language of the natives, Aramaic, the language of their overlords, Latin, and the trade language spoken by everybody, kind of the English of that time, Greek. It was proclaimed in such a way that everybody who could read knew what it said. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And oh boy, the Jewish leaders were not happy about that. They were happy he was dying. But they had pretty much manipulated the situation that he would. Pilate did not want to execute Jesus. Read chapter 18 and 19 this afternoon to get a little bit more of the context. Pilate didn't want to execute Jesus, but he was weak and felt like his hands were tied. So he washed his hands and had Jesus crucified. But he was going to do it his way. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. He's not our king. We rejected him. And Pilate answered, you don't tell me what to do. What I have written, I have written. That doesn't mean that he believed it. But it does mean that he was stubborn and wasn't going to be manipulated any further. He was going to proclaim what he was going to proclaim. He probably thought it was ironic. And it was ironic. Just not in the way that he thought. It was ironic because it was true. It wasn't just ironic, it was prophetic. Pilate was unwittingly witnessing to the true identity of the Prince of Glory. He was and is the King of the Jews. And more, the King of the entire whole world. What is the right application of that for us today? But to vow. <laughs> to worship Jesus as king. He was being enthroned as king, even as he was being crucified. He may be the strangest king there ever was, but he's the greatest king there will ever be. And he was being proclaimed as king, universally proclaimed as king, even as they crucified him there. Worship him. That's why we gathered this morning. Worship Him. We're the whole realm of nature mine. If I had the whole world, that would be a present far too small to give to Him in worship. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or in the words of last week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And don't just worship Him, but proclaim Him now as well. Tell somebody about Jesus in the next month. 
Abe was telling us who he's been talking about, who he's been talking to about Jesus. Who have you been talking to about Jesus? Tell them about Jesus. Do evangelism. Be bold and share about your faith in your Lord. He's your king, right? He did this for you, right? Tell somebody about him. Number two, as they crucified him, number two, Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures. Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures. I love how John could see how these people who were doing such evil things were unwittingly accomplishing God's plans at the very same time. Look with me at verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, don't forget what's happening. Don't look away. When this four-man execution squad crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, robe, belt, sandals, head covering, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. We sometimes call it a tunic. We don't really know what that means, right? I don't use that word very often. Anybody wearing a tunic this morning? For Jesus, it was like, a, it was like an undershirt that went from neck to knees, or maybe a little bit further. And this one was woven like from top to bottom, all of one piece, so it was too valuable to cut into four pieces. Verse 24, they had a solution. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Get out the dice. I'll roll you for it. This guy won't be needing it much longer. Don't miss how awful this is. When this little game of chance was over, our Lord was hanging there exposed. But even in that shaming act, these soldiers were carrying out God's plan. The Apostle John saw in their gambling God's promises. His mind went back to Psalm 22, the one that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read it together just about one year ago in that parking lot right there in the drizzle. Psalm 22. And John, seeing that gambling, says, That's Psalm 22. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. Look at verse 24. John writes, This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. King David wrote that a thousand years before Jesus was born. It's terrible. It's wonderful at the same time. When you sing, when I survey the wondrous cross, do you think like wondrous because there's like light bouncing off of it? It's glorious and woo, it's beautiful. No, it's wondrous because it's so evil. 
so horrible and so good at the very same time. Because it means that nothing can stop the promises of God. Even the scariest of those promises. And it means that you and I can trust in the promises of God, even the sweetest and most unbelievable of them. God can use all kinds of horrible things to effect His good plan for His children. I mean, on a grander scale, that's what was happening as Jesus was crucified, right? This was a terrible injustice. This man hanging on the cross, that shouldn't have happened. And yet it was also God's plan being carried out. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter told the gathering, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's both and. They should not have done that. But praise God that they did. These soldiers should not have gambled for his clothes. But praise God they did. Verse 24, so this is what the soldiers did. They weren't trying to fulfill Scripture, and they were definitely fulfilling Scripture. Praise God that no matter how he does it, he always keeps his promises. Amen? Let's trust those promises. Do you know God's promises to you? Do you know what he's promised to do? Nothing will stop him from keeping them. In fact, he will use everything, even the bad things, to bring them to fruition. Even those soldiers stealing his last earthly possessions. At this moment in time, Jesus had nothing. No things. And he's about to lose his family. Because he's about to lose his life. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We'll hear more from her when we get to chapter 20. Right now, of the four women here, Jesus focuses on his mom. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his own, took home. He took responsibility for her. Most Christian scholars believe that this disciple here is John the Apostle and the Gospel writer himself. He's at once too humble to say his name and also too bold over to have been so beloved like this. Jesus saw his mother, who was about to have that sharp sword of grief pierce her soul. 
So he tenderly arranges an adoption of sorts for her. He provides for her, and really for John as well. Likely, Joseph has died, and Jesus' half-brothers don't believe in him yet, so Jesus puts these two together to watch out for each other. And here's what I'm amazed at at this point in the story. I'm amazed that he's thinking about them at all. I don't know about you, but if I were being crucified... I'd be thinking about being crucified. I wouldn't be able to think about anything else. I'd be full of terror and rage at what was happening to me. But Jesus is full of love. That's point number three this morning. Even as they crucified him, Jesus was caring for his loved ones. Jesus was caring for his loved ones. His beloved mother and his beloved disciple. And you know he was caring for you and me too. I think it's terrible that these women had to be there watching this monstrous thing happen. But Jesus was in control. He was in charge even as he hung dying. He was making arrangements. He's making arrangements. He was making arrangements for his loved ones including arrangements for you. Lori, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. Sandy, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. David, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. Judy, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. Rick, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. You were on his mind. Pam, he was making arrangements for you on the cross. As he's dying, he's bleeding, he's hardly breathing. And he's making arrangements for you. He's caring for his loved ones. Tammy, Jesus was making arrangements for you on the cross. Mike, Jesus was making arrangements for you on the cross as he was dying. Even as they crucified him, Jesus was caring for his loved ones. Do you feel that? Can you imagine? In fact, point four and last, Jesus was completing his mission. As they crucified him there, as he was dying, Jesus was completing his mission. 
his mission. I love how John knows that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It really comes out as you're reading John's gospel. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus is choosing this. Jesus is in charge. He's the one guy, in many ways, where it looks like he's not in charge in this whole story, right? But more than anybody else, John brings out, he's in charge. Pilate didn't realize what he was doing. I wrote what I wrote. Yeah, well, there's a reason why you wrote what you wrote. The soldiers didn't realize what they were doing. They thought they were just taking home some stuff from their hard day at work, killing people. The Jews didn't realize what they were doing. Crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Look at verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. He knows exactly what he's about. He's fulfilling Scripture on purpose. He knows he's got to this point in his own story, and it's now time to kick in some more Scripture into effect. Psalm 22, again, says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Or Psalm 69, verse 21, even more relevant. Another passage we looked at about a year ago says this, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Jesus is doing this on purpose. Now, he's genuinely thirsty. This is not play-acting thirst. They're crucifying him here. But he says it like this now to make sure that we understand that he's fulfilling Psalm 22 and he's fulfilling Psalm 69, and so are the soldiers once again. Verse 29, a jar of wine Vinegar, cheap sour wine, was there. Surprise, surprise. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And he knows that the moment has come. It's the completion moment where he's bringing everything that he's been doing all together. And now that his mouth is moistened, he can yell out with a loud cry. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Greek, that's just one word. Takes us three English words, it is finished. But in Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. It is finished. And he's not saying, I am finished. As in, I'm a goner. Or, I have lost. I give up. No, he's saying, mission accomplished. He's saying that he has won the victory. He's saying that his suffering is over because he has accomplished its purpose. He's done what the Father sent him to do. Just a few hours earlier, he had prayed to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now that work is completely done. And so Jesus can lay down his life and give up his spirit. He is in control even of the moment of his death with these words on his lips. Verse 
It is finished. History tells us that this word tetelestai was often written on a business document or a receipt to indicate that a bill had been paid in full. Just this last week, I had some work done for me. Guy wrote up a bill. I, I paid him. He then wrote on it, paid in full. In Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full. When they crucified Jesus there at the place of the skull, Jesus was completing his mission of saving his people. He was paying our debt that we could never pay. Paid in full. Tetelestai. It is finished. 